Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. As a student, I actually was quite obsessed with kāka, so a group of us, because there's no kāka then around these parts, we went down to Waitutu for a tramp. But the sole purpose was to see a kāka, and we actually took an old-school cassette player with us with kāka calls. One of the first viaducts, we ended up playing it, brought this cassette player out, played kāka calls. And then three of us saw wild kāka for the first time. So then, 20 years later or something, or a bit more, to have a kāka population here, it's, it's quite amazing. Naumai harumai ki tō tātou au hurihuri. Welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Claire Kankanen ahau. That was the voice of Orokanui Eco Sanctuary Conservation Manager Elton Smith. Recorded in the Eco Sanctuary as we sat one sunny afternoon beside a large bird cage, waiting for some kaka to make a flight for freedom. Orokanui Eco Sanctuary sits in the hills just north of Dunedin City. A predator-proof fence surrounds 307 hectares of forest, in which pests have been removed, creating a safe space for native bird species, such as kaka, tui, koremako, kiwi and takahe, as well as for tuatara, geckos and skinks. Now really this story starts in 2008, when six captive-bred South Island kaka were released into Orokanui Eco Sanctuary. The hope was that these birds would mate and nest and multiply. And, with extra birds being added in from the ongoing breeding program, that kaka numbers would continually rise. But this hasn't exactly been the case. So, while the story does start with those first few kaka, we're going to join it a few weeks back, when I met up with Kelly Goff, the Orokanui Eco Sanctuary Ranger, at the Dunedin Botanic Garden. So these are kaka transport boxes. Yeah. So they're specially made for kaka to be able to travel safely. So I'm just going to take these to where we're going to meet Alicia and she'll have already contained the birds that we're after and we'll just pop them into these boxes ready for transport. We're here to pick up three kaka who are being released into the eco-sanctuary. Hi, good, thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Are they being transported now from the Avery to Orokanui Eco Sanctuary because they've hit a certain age or because they're starting to exhibit behaviours that would mean that they should get moved? Uh, for the most part, it doesn't matter too much about their age. We're just getting them because they're now fully independent, so no reliance on their parents again. And you don't want to keep them in captivity too long because then they might actually form a bond to each other and in most cases they're brother-sister. So you don't want them to all of a sudden think, hey, you're my mate now, not my sister. So the sooner we can release them, the more they're going to bond with other kaka and just get into more of that regular kaka attitude that we want to see rather than being in an artificial environment which can you know, stimulate other behaviours. Yeah. Brother-sister raised together, 
and the third bird that she's bringing in is the one from Tiano. So these two birds have been bred here in the Dunedin Botanic Garden and are ready now to fly free. The third bird came from Tiano and needed some help being fed as a chick, which is why both Kelly and Avery curator Alicia Sheriff are keen to see it released into the eco-sanctuary as soon as possible. This little bird was mostly hand-reared, which means it's really imprinted on people. And because we're effectively releasing them, they can go where they want, the birds that are the tamest are the more likely ones to get themselves into trouble because they're going to hang around human residences and that, of course, increases its risk of predation. There's, you know, there's dogs, there's cats, there's stoats. Uh, they also often end up getting fed, which then creates a set of problems. And just the fact that they're so used to stimuli from people that they see things as just being stimuli for them, so they're more likely to check out water tanks and power lines and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. So the... The most at-risk birds are the young birds, but you could argue that even further at risk are the ones that are more habitualised to human things. Once all the birds are safely in the boxes, I have a quick chat with Alicia about her role as Avery curator. So the Dunedin Botanic Garden, Avery, has been part of the South Island Kaka breeding programme for be going into the 11th year now. Yeah, we've been breeding kaka here for release, um, mainly for Orokanui. So when the sanctuary was founded, that was uh, tied in with when the breeding program started. And it was really the main focus at that time was to help establish a founding population of South Island kaka within the sanctuary. And when you say South Island kaka, this is because they're different. They're a different species. So we've got South Island kaka and the North Island kaka, so, and there is talk of uh, the top of the South Island, so a potential subspecies of kaka found up around the Kahurangi area. But yeah, so South Island kaka are uh, slightly different. They're bigger than the North Island kaka, um, and uh, I personally think they're a lot more colourful in terms of having that really beautiful, uh, rich red under the wings and along the bottom of the body and a real deep chocolate sort of uh, colour of the main feathers and some of them have a lot more whiter in the head colouring but that's the main difference is is the size between the North and the South Island kaka. You've obviously spoken with pride there about the differences in the South Island (laughs) kaka. Yeah I guess I feel proud to be able to contribute, help contribute um, to local biodiversity and to try and re-establish a a species that was uh, once found around this area so It's uh, mostly mum and dad do all the work. I just uh, support on the sidelines and also with the support of the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital if we have any health issues or concerns. Um, If we do, when we do disease screening, they're there to support me as well. So it's a really nice collaboration between a few facilities that are contributing to this uh, release of a really special Tonga species of South Island kaka. So now we're going to take these birds down to the wildlife hospital to get their testing done and we're testing them for lead levels. So kaka can ingest things which will increase their lead levels throughout their life but they aren't able to expel it on their own. So what we like to do is start off making sure that before we release them they're at safe and normal levels so that no matter what they encounter they've got quite a lot of leeway before there's a problem. The Dunedin Wildlife Hospital is a special 
and busy place that works closely with many organisations dealing with threatened native wildlife. They have an important role to play for this goal of returning Kaka to the city and work closely with Alicia and Orknui Eco Sanctuary to help when birds are sick or injured. On this trip, these kaka will just get some blood drawn from a vein in their legs to check for lead levels. Because, like us, it isn't good for them. Dr. Lisa explains. Lead is a cumulative toxin, so it gets stored in the bone marrow. Um, No animal, and humans included, can excrete this poison without treatment. So... If you are exposed to lead uh, continuously throughout your entire life and you don't get any treatment, it will eventually just continue to elevate. And once you reach a certain threshold, it can actually start to cause nasty symptoms neurologically and it can make you very unwell and ultimately can actually result in death. So it's a very, very serious toxin. So we do take it seriously if we see that there is a lead level and we will treat birds if they are at the threshold Once the birds are checked and cleared for lead, they're ready to be released into Orokanui Eco Sanctuary. It's not a bad view. So peaks in the distance. Before release, these birds have been given coloured bands for identification and fitted with radio frequency transmitters. These will last for 18 months and Elton and Kelly will use them to track the birds' movements as much as they can, if they stay within or close to the eco sanctuary. Now, though, I'm really excited to see a dramatic liftoff into the forest where these beautiful young parrots embrace newfound freedom. Elton tempers my expectations about the release. It could be slightly anticlimactic, to be honest, today. You open up the flap and they will choose to fly out or not. (laughs) I remember the very first release we did, we had six. And it took hours, hours for them to come out. Really? And we had a bit of a crowd. Yeah, they got a bit of stage fright, I think. But because these guys have never actually flown properly, they're just flying around the aviary, if we caught a wild bird and banded it or put a transmitter on, we just take it outside and actually literally throw it into the air. I wouldn't want to do that with these ones because they might just hit the ground. They won't have good, strong wings yet. So we'll just leave it up to them what they want to do. They can fly, but they won't be able to fly very strongly. and That could be quite embarrassing for everyone, including them. Don't is want to embarrass them on their they, first day no, in front they, of the other they hit the ground. But it's they are they they're quite crafty and they're getting too kind of used to humans. So it's about time they were released. He fills me in on the roller coaster ride that has been the history of Kaka at Orokanui since those first six birds were released. Because it hasn't been all smooth sailing. We've had two major setbacks, and this is why it hasn't exactly been like Zelandia, hasn't it's taken ten years to get the population to a decent level. But in that time, we've had two major setbacks. The infamous year of the stoats in 2015, which unlike the urban legend, it, was, it wasn't one stoat, it was four stoats, raided the sanctuary for, in at least 10 months, we had stoats in here. And we lost something like 60% of our females. We did find two predated on nests, and then the others just disappeared. And that was during the breeding season, so you can add one and one together there. Yeah. And then, oh, what was it, two years, maybe two years ago, there was a, a possum poison operation surrounding the sanctuary. But unfortunately, the um, operators didn't really think about kaka. And they deployed something like, I think it was 4,000 kaka-friendly bait stations. And we found two poisoned kaka, Britificum poisoned kaka. 
and I can't believe that that was the only two kaka that were poisoned. Uh, but it's live and learn. The fact of the matter is, with, with these sort of sanctuaries, there is a halo effect. Things are flying over the fence. And Dunedin hasn't had kaka for 100, 120 years. Yeah. And so people have to start thinking that, ah, oh, okay, now we're going to have to adapt our control or eradicate techniques uh, to factor into kaka. And because these kaka are all supplementary fed and they're intelligent animals, they interact with human devices probably quite a lot more than the average wild kaka in, say, the Eglinton Valley or something like that. So it's just adapting. And that's going to be ongoing with predator-free is hopefully these things extend or expand their, their home ranges. Because that's the issue, right? You have this beautiful fenced eco-sanctuary, but kaka can fly. Yeah, highly mobile, intelligent, charismatic, sort of inquisitive. So, um, they, I mean, they're a cousin of Kia after all. Mm. What kind of range can they fly? Oh, well, kaka, if it wanted to, could easily fly 20 kilometres in a straight line just in one day. It would depend, well, we've already seen with the GPS study, it kind of varies the on the sex, on their, if they're a juvenile, if they're an adult, if they're a male, if they're a female. I mean, a young male, like any species, is a classic, right, I'm going, and they'll just fly. So they just won't all stay here. That's just not how animals, wild animals, operate, really. Besides those bigger setbacks, there have also been some other deaths of the stranger variety, termed death by misadventure, like drowning in a water tank that didn't have a lid on and electrocution in power lines. And of course, those are the ones that they know of. So looking towards the bigger picture of the return of Kaka to the area, it's important to look beyond the fence. We're only 307 hectares of actually not very Kaka-friendly forest. It's 100-year-old Kanuka mainly, which is not classic Kaka habitat. And so to have a large, robust population of kaka, hundreds of birds, they need to be breeding successfully on the outside of the sanctuary. Mm. There's only so many kaka we can have inside. And the only reason we have them still in here is that the supplementary feeding regime. And that was a means to an end to start off with, because if you didn't have that, the kaka wouldn't have stayed in here. But this is still the safest place for kaka to be. It remains to be seen uh, if they are breeding, well, if they can breed successfully on the outside of the sanctuary. It's quite likely now, with some really good stoat and possum control surrounding us, but we actually haven't found the holy grail of a successful nest on the outside. There's been hints, and I would say it's, I'm pretty sure it has occurred, but I'd actually like to document that in the flesh and go, wow, that, yeah. that nest over there outside the sanctuary just produced four chicks, fledged four chicks. But even, it's just, yeah, it's... um. They spend weeks on the ground after they fledge, so even if you do have your possums and stoats down to very low levels, then you've got things like ferrets or cats or dogs that they're so vulnerable for so long. It's the way they nest, right? Yeah, I mean, most of the predation occurs on the nests. A stoat will come in and take out the female, take out the chicks or eggs, uh, or, or a possum, but it's mostly stoats, the researchers showed. But it's also when the chicks fledge, so they jump out of their cavity and then they're pretty much flightless just groveling around on the ground for days or weeks, completely vulnerable to anything, really. So, and they nest, I can't remember, what is it, 60 days or so, well, 90 days, up to 90 days. It's a yeah. long time 
in the nest and then a, a reasonable long time on the ground. But hey, that's all negative stuff. The good news is they're here. And this year we've identified 49 inside the sanctuary. That's not to say today there's 49 kaka in here because we know for a fact that many come and go. But that, that is tracking up quite nicely. The graph is going up, which is happy. Nice. We just don't want another setback. Where are we off to now? Well, we're in the top of the sanctuary, and this is we call this the trust land, which is actually the Kiwi Kreish. It's a fence within the fence, but we're going to go down to the Avery, which is a couple of minutes walk just downhill here, and um, there'll be three excited kaka waiting for us. Well, probably not that excited. They're probably this time of the day a bit quiet and dozy, but they've had an exciting morning. And this is the largest live trap in the world. So this is how we catch our wild kaka to band. We've got a little flat there. So Kelly and the volunteers put some nice treats in the hopper. And the word seems to get round that there's um, some treats. And then they'll end up going inside and you quite simply just close the wee hatch behind them. Okay. And hey presto, a big live cage. Today, of course, the birds will be going the other way. Kelly and Elton bring me inside the big cage to where the three kaka are clambering around up at the top, using their strong claws and beaks to grab onto the metal of the cage and kind of growling. They have had a stressful morning with the transmitter fitting and banding, so they're a little on edge. You've been warned about how anticlimactic it could be? I have been. It's a soft release for you. They can do it when they want to. Kelly opens the hatch and, actually, not much. They were not ready for it. We sit down to wait. Let's so there is a lot of effort behind getting these three kaka ready for release and getting the area ready for them from the Dunedin Botanic Garden, where the chicks are born and reared, to Dunedin Wildlife Hospital, where they are taken care of when they are sick, to Orokanui Eco-Sanctuary, where they are released and given a safe space, to the Halo Project, doing trapping and restoration work around the sanctuary, to the wider predator-free Dunedin effort. There is a big group of organisations working together to help the kaka return. But now... As kaka numbers grow and the birds fly further afield, they also need help from the landowners and wider community. And this is the part that Taylor is focused on. Kia ora, my name is Taylor Davies Colley. I'm an educator at Aurokanui Eco Sanctuary and I'm also the project manager for the Kehianga Kaka uh, community project that we're running at the moment. If we think about the environment we live in in a really human space, we tend to divide it. You know, we have our own sections. We have our, we have the sanctuary, and the sanctuary manages a piece of land, and then all the people around us have have a piece of land that they own. And you don't go into other people's pieces of land, and you don't manage that, and you, you kind of keep to your own patch. But Kaka don't see the world that way, and wildlife doesn't see the world that way. Uh, to Kaka, it's all theirs. It's all their place. And, and for these kaka, they're returning to their ancestral home. You know, they've been lost from this area for 100, 150 years and they're returning and it's all of their space to be. And so, uh, you know, we at the sanctuary can manage them within our space, but we can't manage them outside without getting that community involved. So 
in one part, it, it's trying to get some sort of involvement from those other places that Kaka are going, but also it's a way to engage the community in caring more about the species and wanting to make change because, you know, we can manage the sanctuary as much as we like, but the the majority of the habitat that they're going to be in is going to be around the sanctuary and these people's properties, and those need to be safe for Kaka. And where possible, people should be thinking about what how they can improve their properties, providing those resources, food, nesting sites, those sorts of things for Kaka as well. The project name Kehe na Kaka means where are the Kaka? So a big part of this community project is asking those around the eco-sanctuary to look out for these birds. The primary thing that we started with and, and is still ongoing is that we've been engaging the entire community to record kark sightings. So the majority of the people around the sanctuary get kaka visiting. They can record when they saw the kaka, what they saw the kaka doing, and if possible, they can record the bands on that kaka. And that tells us a lot about that animal. Uh, we can we know exactly who that kaka is by its individual egg bands, and we can see which kaka spend more time outside the fence. And that is really useful because we can tell which groups are more vulnerable. We also um, engage in the community in terms of looking for those risks. Um, and so we're getting people to kind of assess their properties because in 2019 and 2020, kaka died to things that we didn't expect them to. And so that, you know, can we predict risks before they kill kaka is a really important question. So we've held some public meetings, um, we've been doing a lot of correspondence digitally, but also I did a lot of uh, sort of cup of teas where I went around people's houses and just had a chat with them about kaka and about kaka visiting their property. And then on top of that, we've also engaged with our three local schools, so Waitati School, Pirakanui School and Port Chalmers School, who are all sort of... Uh, contain families that live within that sort of immediate kaka zone that we see in kaka in at the moment. So the database is helping to provide a clearer picture of where the birds are going to outside of the sanctuary. And even helping them to pick up birds that they haven't spotted on surveys inside the fence. They're spending more and more time outside the fence. I think that was one of the things that this research has shown, both the database and the tracking work done, is that kaka are spending way more time outside the fence than we even thought we knew they were but much more than we thought Mm. because the community database is kind of sitting alongside some gps tracking work that was done by a student at the university of otago right can you just tell me a little bit about that work yeah sure so we were really lucky to have scott forrest uh working alongside us as well so he's a he was a master's student at the university of otago as you said and he was attaching GPS transmitters to some kaka. And so these transmitters um, sat on a little string backpack on the back of the kaka. And they recorded the location of that bird every three hours for about five months. And so that's provided a really data-rich set of information for those 10 kaka. And that showed that I think pretty much all the birds were spending some of their time outside the sanctuary and some birds were spending up to 70% of their time outside the sanctuary. So a really a really big difference. Um, some of the older birds, I think one of them, um, a 10-year-old female, basically spent all her time around Autokanui's feeders, hardly left. And then some of the young birds spent way, way longer. So that was really cool. Unfortunately, um, which is kind of the, the downside of that, is that we just can't afford to put trackers on all the birds um you know each one of those gps trackers is about two and a half grand so you know putting them on 10 alone was it was a massive um investment and we're really lucky to get funding for that but we can't put them on all the kaka it's just not practical 
In 2016, Zealandia Eco Sanctuary in Wellington, having banned 750 birds, stepped back from their intensive nest box monitoring of the North Island Kaka. And they're now a common sight in Wellington. But it's different for Orkanui and Dunedin, and they still have a way to go. One of the big differences is that for Wellington, North Island kaka populations could move between existing forest corridors, so kaka from the Tararuas or Kapiti Island could show up in the sanctuary, and vice versa. The ultimate goal has to be a fully self-sustaining population of kaka in Dunedin. Now the hard part about that is, is that Dunedin's an island, and not an island surrounded by water, but an island surrounded by a lack of trees. East Coast Otago has been decimated in terms of loss of forest, and so it's not like our kaka here can just fly over to the other populations over in places like Tiano or down to Rakiura. To have a stable population here in Dunedin, it has to be big enough that we've got enough genetic diversity and that it's stable enough that we don't have to rely on kaka coming in from other places to top it up. So it's quite a large population that we need to establish. We don't have a a number on that. We have kind of these goals that we want to get to, you know, like um, I think the next stage is to make sure that we have 20 breeding pairs, which is our, which is our kind of our next goal. We're not, we don't think we're quite there yet. We think we're really close to that number, but not quite. Um, and from there, you know, you hope that we get to a population of a couple hundred birds where we start to get genetic diversity that is viable and stable. And then the next step is, is for the future of these birds in New Zealand is that we have to re-establish some forest corridors so Kaka can move around the South Island. Back at the eco-sanctuary, we're still waiting beside the cage for the Kaka to leave. Kelly has even placed some apple on a platform outside the cage to entice them out, but wild birds come to snaffle it instead. And so there are many false starts with a bird coming out and going yeah, back in go. and going onto the roof and going back in again until eventually one clambers onto the roof and then makes a really short, like you couldn't even call it a flight, more like a hop to the tree next door. Oh, he looks happy. I, I tell you, he's... I just leave. I can get in the camera Yay! Yay! <laughs> he's in the tree. He leapt. A good 40 centimetres. Oh, wow. That is a wild bird. We'll call it wild. Done. Job done. We leave the other two to find the way out on their own time. And we wish them all happy, successful and long lives. Lots of people to thank this week. Elton Smith, Kelly Goff and Taylor davis Colley of Orokunui Eco Sanctuary. Alicia Sheriff of Dunedin Botanical Garden and Dr Lisa and Jordana White of Dunedin Wildlife Hospital. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. New episodes of Our Changing World come out every week. And so to avoid missing an episode, the best thing to do is to follow the show. And you can do that for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Visit our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld to see photos and links related to this story and to explore our extensive back catalogue of episodes. If you are on Facebook or Twitter, 
we're there too. Come and say hi, we're at RNZ Science. And make sure you explore all of the other amazing podcasts made by RNZ. On the website, just click on the Podcasts and Series tab. There are many there to choose from. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Concannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.